Amen. Isaiah chapter 62 this evening. I want to hear from God also. Long haul resolve is the, I think, the dominant theme of this section. First going to talk about theology, then we should kind of flow through this kind of quickly. Theology is a study of God through his word. That's the definition of theology. And so as Bible students, that makes us theologians, not of course in the formal sense, but it is equally applies. And you you may say after a while, what use is theology if it doesn't improve my walk? Well, without theology, you're never going to improve your walk. You don't have a walk. And you could end up on the wrong team. You could end up being used by Satan. There are people with Bible knowledge that have no intention of adhering to the scriptures because their theology is not sound. In fact, the word or the phrase sound doctrine means theology. And you, you know, why, do, why would a pastor have to spend a few moments on such a thing? Because as the years roll by, Bible study uh, will get challenged and the individual may become disillusioned with how much damage sin can inflict, not only on the one who's pledged allegiance to Christ and wants to learn as much of the Bible as they can, but also to loved ones, friends, family. Sin's very, um, very real. And you, you, may not, you may not be ready for these things. You may have the wind knocked out of you. Solomon said, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's nothing, it's just nothing. It's all just a waste of time. Well, theology is vain if it does not have a long-term resolve. It is going to be vain going to be for nothing. You may have met people that were really into the word of God at some point in their life and no longer walk with the Lord. I think God gave us the book of Ecclesiastes and the letter to the Romans to force us to think. Because you, you cannot, after you get a knowledge of the New Testament, you cannot casually read Ecclesiastes. It, it, it forces questions upon you that you have to think about. And Romans, I think it's muddied up by Calvinism, but even the letter to the Romans, Paul has so many parentheses and goes off these rabbit, they're they're important rabbit trails, but they're rabbit trails nonetheless, and he goes down them and it makes it a little difficult to follow him, but when you get it together, either way, you're going to have to think. But it seems that many professed Christians, at least in my decades of service, they seem to detest thinking. They want no part of it. They want to feel their way through Christianity. Now, I'm not questioning whether they're saved or not. But I am saying there are those that want more of a feeling than to have to think something through. Well, Paul warned about these. He said the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. And there it is. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll shop for the right church to go to that will cater to these itching ears. And so Paul encouraged another pastor, Titus 1.9, Hold fast the faithful word as you have been taught that you may be able by sound doctrine, by theology, by the study of God through God's word. That's what sound doctrine is both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Encourage those that are in the fight, but those who are causing fights, don't put up with that. Well, there there are others also that are very much into theology, but they run the risk of overthinking their theology. They think overthink to a fault. And they depart from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus, which is very important. We don't have, we're not given the scripture 
to make it our hobby and to just make it so deep that it's almost pointless. You could have arrived at these deep understandings with simple language. And so again, again to Titus, but as for you, Paul speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, sound theology. Well, what's the purpose of theology? To learn about God, what he wants, what he does not want, what to do with what we learn about what he wants and does not want. Well, he wants to be glorified. He wants to, for us to shine the light. Let your light shine before men that, that your Father in heaven may be glorified. So sound doctrine, good theology, requires truth, and that requires trust. You can have the truth, but do you trust it enough to act on it? Under pressure, anybody can walk the walk when there's no pressure, when there's nothing to be afraid of, when you're not challenged, when you're just happy with everything. What about when you're miserable? What about when things blow up in your face? When you didn't see that coming and you did everything you could to protect yourself. And it happens anyway. Well, you have the truth, you have the trust. Those two should pave the way for perseverance, the long haul. And the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, highlight the importance of a long haul. And you're going to see, I hope, I hope my intention is that everything I'm saying is found in the very first verse we come to. Don't read it yet. We're almost there. This chapter begins with a demonstration of long haul theology. The resolve, the determination, inaction from God and from his prophet, from his people. And anybody who's doing the work of God willfully on assignment is in a prophetic role. That doesn't mean they're telling the future. There's more to prophecy than just predictive prophecy. There are other forms of prophecy. Remember, the priesthood goes upward with its ministry, and the prophetic ministry comes downward with its. It comes to earth from the throne of God. You have these two lanes, one going up to heaven and one coming down. And the prophetic office of Elijah and Isaiah... And the others was to bring the message from the throne of God to man. And the priests, on the other hand, were to intercede for the people, to go to God from earth to God. We are a royal priesthood, but we also have the spirit of prophecy in its many forms. Uh, preaching, uh, singing, quoting scripture. Uh, Philip's daughters who prophesied, they likely were singing or reciting scripture. Not likely they're predicting the future because it's, it begins to, you know, you stop thinking, okay, what, what are they, who has all those predictions? Uh, we don't walk around and do business like that. When we come across somebody who does that, we're a little annoyed at them. I find bear spray to be very helpful in those situations. It's <laughs> not funny because I do it. <laughs> anyway, God, uh, he puts this investment into Isaiah, and it's not wasted. No matter the outcome, no matter how long, and he had a long ministry. We know that from the kings he mentions that he served under, from Uzziah to Manasseh. He had a long haul in serving every bit of the way. And so this theology, when we use this verse, whether you're aware or not, we're speaking about theology. So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There's theology in that, and there's no mention of fear. I know, fear is a hard thing to turn off sometimes. But it has to be faced. Because the alternative of, of, of being slain from behind, is unacceptable. And Isaiah, he would have to go to his grave to keep up with the pledges of his faith. So now we look at verse 1, and we see what, uh, hopefully, I haven't goofed it up. Verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation 
as a lamp that burns. Well, God's objective in this section is establishing Jerusalem, ultimately. The ultimate establishment of Jerusalem. The speaker here is the Lord, and it is also Isaiah. Isaiah takes the message from God. He not only echoes it, he lines up his life to it. The speaker is saying that he will not hold his peace. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to keep preaching. God is saying I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep speaking. I will not rest. That's what he says there in verse 1. This is the role of the Christian. This is the role of those who have this long-haul resolve to serve the Lord Jesus. Of course, God does not give up. The subsequent prophets and the apostles confirm this. They attest to it. Otherwise, there would have been no more prophets. There would have been no apostles because he would have given up, but he did not give up. There would be no end-time prophecies. We wouldn't see that becoming true in our lifetime because God is still on the throne and God is still active. He still has his plan and he shared much of it, much of it with us. So this is God speaking and it is Isaiah preaching and living it also. Yahweh is not going to give up. Isaiah says, and neither am I. The resolve of God is shared with his servant. And that's why I mentioned the long ministry of Isaiah. How we know these things. He's ministering into the reign of Manasseh, who was a vicious king who likely killed him. Uh, Legend has it that Manasseh stuffed Isaiah into a log and then had the log sawn in two while he was in the log and alive. Well, it might be what the prophet, what the writer to the Hebrews referenced in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, and were sawn asunder. Might be talking about uh, Isaiah. Whether he was a martyr or not, he was a faithful prophet all the way through his life. And Christ quoted him often. And so all of this is confirmed in his ministry. And here, he is determined to follow through with his ministry. I will not hold my peace. That's Isaiah. It's God too, of course. But we're trying to bring it down to our level where it applies directly to us. And I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Well, he certainly died before... He could see that fulfilled, but God has not died. God is still active. And so promising that he would not keep silent, that he would not slack off. You can make that, you can make that promise, you can have that pledge early in your life as a Christian. And you can carry it for several years. And then the attacks will come. They might come sooner. But they often wait. And you've got this, you know, spirit of I'm going to go preach like I've, nobody's ever preached before. Well, there's been a lot of people have good preachers and you some <laughs> stiff competition there. But uh, it's understood. You have this zeal for the Lord. That's why Paul said, Let, don't lay hands on anyone quickly. Let them first be tested. We have to see if they can stand the heat in the kitchen before we give them authority in the kitchen. And so, again, to reread the words that promise not to slack off. I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth. So the pledge begins with God and it spreads out into the prophet and into the people and people such as we are. Determined to finish the work. We'll get back to this. Well, let's look at it now at verse 6, where it continues. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace, day nor night. You who make mention of Yahweh, do not keep silent. Don't give up. Do what you're supposed to do. 
This is a biblical statement on God's resolve and the prophet's like-mindedness. And God will give Isaiah the sermons and the energy to minister the word. And the ministry of the word is far more than just preaching the word. There's a lot more to the ministry of the word than just preaching it. We get that phrase, the ministry of the word, from Ephesians. This is a biblical statement, again, on God's resolve. God will give him what he needs. The prayer, the heart to intercede in prayer. To intercede, to pray on behalf of another, you've got to have a heart for them. Stirred by God. You might not even be mindful of a person in need until God stirs your heart. A lot of you have been through this many times. You're going to need conviction. When these prophets wrote their prophecies or thundered them, they were convinced it was going to be just as God said it would be. Even though they didn't live even close to many of the prophecies, fulfillments that they uttered. Look how many prophecies Isaiah uttered about the coming of Christ. And it was another, what, 800 years before they, almost 800 years, before they came true. He wasn't around to see them from earth. So prayer, intercession, conviction, exhortation. So here's a list of verses that mean something. They all mean something, but in the context of what I'm saying. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, for the, to the leaders at the church of Ephesus, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I will not be silent. I will give no rest to myself. Samuel, when the people they essentially turned on Samuel, and God said, Samuel, it's not against you, it's against me, they turned. And Samuel said, yeah, that's true, Lord, but it hurts me. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. I'm not going to abandon my post. I'm still going to be in the pulpit. I'm still going to be teaching. I'm going to do what God called me to do, regardless of how it is received. Psalm 96, verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Well, this is in accord with what we're reading here. Colossians chapter 1. I like to get up some of the verses that we might not think of in this context, but very much apply. Paul writes, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's intercessory prayer. That is resolve for the long haul. Night and day. And, and Paul said, I want you to be filled with knowledge, but the wisdom to work it. Not just having Bible information where you can argue with people about Greek words that you don't even know how to pronounce. Not that you do that, but there are those that do or have. Spiritual understanding, Paul says. It goes back to, you can't just feel your way through Christianity. All of Deuteronomy 13 says, stop thinking your feelings are going to please God if that's all you got. You have to have the theology with it. And then, of course, one that we should all be familiar with, Ephesians chapter 4, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. How broad is that? The work of ministry. Everything from ordering snacks in the cafe to cleaning the bathrooms to sweeping. I mean, how broad is work of ministry? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, to make the church, the local church, stronger. Because the universal church is really not as strong as the local church. That's where the grunt work takes place. The universal church is philosophical. It's good, but it would be nothing without the local church. People coming in, rubbing elbows and irritating each other sometime. And if you're not irritating each other, maybe someone's kids are irritating you or you're irritating. Either way, we're all sinners. And when you pack us in together from time to time, we rub each other the wrong way. But the saints have been doing this for centuries and getting away with it the right way. So Isaiah's Israel, they were determined to not be righteous. And God is telling him to, you keep preaching it. 
Much like those, many of those in this country who are determined to rot the nation from within. You're going to let them stop, make them. We have this thing, the right to bear arms. Well, I have the right to preach. You have the right to, to carry. I have the right to preach and carry. In case you don't like the preaching. <laughs> I'm ready for you. All right. You have, you know, we don't, we don't need a constitution. We have the scripture to know how to be Christians. Now, I enjoy the Constitution. That is not an anti-Constitution statement. But it is a pro-Scripture statement. I have, a, I have a dual citizenship. I have one here on earth and I have one in heaven. And the one in heaven trumps, that is a good word, the one on earth. Well, in the end, Israel's glorious future will not be in the hands of the majority of apostates that were running the kingdom into the ground in his day. No, no matter how determined evil is, God is more determined. That's verse 1. Verse 1, God is saying, I am determined to, for Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Okay, now we can begin. Verse 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh will name. Well, Isaiah knew Israel's future because God had shown it to him. And it's a global revelation. It's a revelation of not global climate change, but global worship change. And it's not man-made, it will be God-made. You know, 50 billion years ago, Evolution was still wrong. Anyway, come back to this. Just, it's like a commercial. <laughs> you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. So name change reflects intention, destiny, and nature. Now sometimes God took, you know, eliminated the middleman. Like with John the Baptist, he told the parents <laughs> the name of John. So they didn't have to worry about that. And remember, naming a child is the easiest part about having a child. Anyway, um, and who would, who would object <laughs> to that? Uh, even if you don't have children, you were once a child, and you know that I'm right. Anyway, her name will sound forth her new nature and status in the world. And, and he's going to spend a little time on this, because again, name is nature, ideally. And now, why we put so much emphasis on the names of the Lord. You know, the Lord Shalom, the Lord Tzidkanu. You know, we have, you know, we, we, we zoom in on that and we, we develop it because it has meaning. The nature of God is in, the, the, in, in these names. Well, distinguishing the righteous, the righteous nation from the unrighteous ancestors. That's what it's going to do. It's, well, there was an Israel once ago, a long time ago. And they ran it into the ground. But now, look at her now. And then she'll have this, this new name. And so will Jerusalem. And so will the land of Israel. And so the name points forward. And it begins to have the past fade. For example... You might know the answer, but you don't think this way, I, I, I don't believe. What was Abraham's name before God changed his name? It was Abram. But we don't, we, when we think of Abraham, we don't, oh yeah, that's Abram. We say, that's Abraham. And we have to usually be, it's, it's triggered before we remember what his name was. Well, Israel, same thing, it's going to eclipse, the new name will eclipse the old. This is the case with the church at Pergamos. That was also infested with troublemakers, those with poor theology, those who were willfully attracted to false teachings. And the Lord said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just this church, to the churches. These are the local churches. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. That's pretty intimate. Then, Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Notice the distinction between the new Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that is in the land of Israel. 
the distinction is, is clear. There's going to be two of them. And I will write on him my new name. So again, name is nature. It's a big deal with God. Identity is connected to the name. The names are not random. They're God-chosen. And so when a bride marries, she receives a new name. And of course, Israel was married to her. We covered that in earlier chapters. God says, where's the letter of your divorce? He's still mine. Uh, And so in Israel's case, being metaphorically already married to Yahweh, she will receive a new name upon reconciliation. Because, of course, there's, there's trouble in this relationship. Jerusalem will be called a city of righteousness according to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26. I'll pause there. If you have like a pet or maybe just someone you just like to dote on, you come up with all these little pet names for them. They don't have one. They have many names that you might call them. And it's just way, your way of expressing your love at the same time so maybe you, you know, picking out a characteristic about them. Maybe, um, you know, you call somebody who's bald-headed curly. I'm not bald completely. Uh, Anyway, uh, back to this. So Jerusalem, that's one name, the city of righteousness. Jerusalem is also called the city of Yahweh in Isaiah 60, verse 14. When we get to Zechariah, she is called the city of truth, the mountain of Yahweh, of host, and the holy mountain. So you see all these names. This is a, you, you've, you've been on the radar. When you get a, a, a nice nickname, you know, you, you, something about you has been noticed. And it's an art. Nicknames. We don't have them anymore. I like some of them. You know, when I became a steel worker, there were quite a few old timers and they still use a lot of nicknames. And, um, you know, they were... They were terms of endearment, and believe it or not, you know, Crazy Joe, he was actually a loon. He was a nut, but everybody liked him. He was a harmless nut. Billy Wooden Shoes, he was an Indian, an American Indian. I don't know, I never saw him with wooden shoes. I don't know how he got that name. But I don't even know his real name. <laughs> so, but these weren't insults. They wore them with honor. And it's, again, too bad... Uh, you know, me, I, I think if you, I would like to be known as the great and the noble Osnapper. No. Anyway, verse 3. That's one Bible name I would pass on. Well, there's actually a few of them. But anyway, coming back here. Verse 3. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Well, there's a difference between these two headpieces. And that's why they're distinguished is two different headpieces. The crown speaks of God's royal authority, civil government. The Hebrew word there for diadem here, because it's, the translators can use it in different ways in different places, but here in the Hebrew, it's the mitre, the hat, the headdress that the priest wore. It's a taller hat. And that, of course, speaks of the priestly authority. And so here you have the king and the priest, or you have the civil and the spiritual authority delegated to God's people in Israel, the Jewish people in this case. Because the church and those who you know have come back with Christ uh, will have other duties, and they won't be centered in Jerusalem. The need will be taken care of there by God and the Jewish people. But there'll be other, again, the earth will be saturated. Well, not overcrowded, but... The, Desert areas will, will be livable, you know. It's just going to be a different place with a lot of people and a great need for uh, this delegated authority, thus being kings and priests with the Lord. So in this twofold capacity, Israel will have authority, again, delegated to them by the Christ that the present generations tend to reject. And they have this double function over religion and civil life. And you need government in both areas. Verse 4, You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hesubah, and your land Beulah, for Yahweh delights in you, and your land shall be married. Well, reconciled to Christ, the Messiah, and endeared to the world. How radical that alone is going to be, because this isn't the case today. 
the, the, the Jews have been victims of everybody almost, except for the born again. Well, you know, even some of them have been pretty confused about the whole thing to some degree. But they'll no longer be estranged from God nor at odds with the nations. Historically, she was forsaken because of her own doing. She shot herself in the foot, you could say. Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Isaiah 49, 14. And then Isaiah 60, 15. God comes back to that. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated. Not by God. The hatred part. So, Although their ways were, some of them the apostate ways, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy for many nations. And so that is still unfulfilled. He says here in verse 4, you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. When I ministered in New York, there was a Hephzibah house, and that was a house for women who had been abused and they were hiding um, to safety and anyway. It comes to mind. So two names, two natures, Hephzibah and Beulah, symbolic. The first one, my delight, Hephzibah, and that's Jerusalem, one of the names that God dotes upon Jerusalem. King Hezekiah's wife, incidentally, was named that too. Beulah means married, and that will, is referring to the promised land. And so you put the two together, and you have the delightful wife, the happy marriage, and... Uh, this, is, this imagery, this marriage imagery, of, of course, foreshadows the New Testament metaphor. It's continued there, the church as the bride. Uh, Paul said, I wanted to present you as a chaste bride. Uh, we have it in Revelation and we have it in Ephesians. Our New Testament metaphor, based on an Old Testament metaphor of God's relationship with Israel, well, the church has really become the remnant of the righteous. We're not ethnically Jewish, but spiritually, we are still connected to Abraham, the same God that Abraham worshipped, the same God we worship. And so we are the righteous remnant. And we, we factor into this imagery. And there is, again, no uncertainty in the things that Isaiah is saying in his own heart. He's saying it as though it's already happened. And this was a characteristic of many of the prophets. Well, moving forward to verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So again, it's metaphor. And in that verse 5 is future. Uh, they will marry in the sense that uh, they will possess the land, the city and the land legally, and uh, they will be in love with God, the, the Christ, unlike today. Uh, they certainly are not in love with the Messiah, the true Messiah. They can't identify him. They don't even have the records, even if he showed up and he said, I'm, I'm your Messiah. I'm from the tribe of David. You couldn't prove it. The window has closed. It was open when Christ was here, and he, he used it. Verse 6, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Well, that would be us. And I think this is present tense. In the days of Isaiah, in, this, in our day too, the watchmen are the prophets who ought to serve. And they ought to serve tirelessly, as verse 1 pointed out. It does include male and female alike. In Revelation 19.10, when I mentioned to you that prophecy is, belongs to speaking God's word, belonging to Christ, Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The whole story of Christ, when we tell it, we are prophesying in that sense. And don't, 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 you don't have to be reserved about that. You're not saying, you know, in five minutes, gasoline's going to go down two cents. I mean, <laughs> that's predictive prophecy. And if you mess that up one time, you're fired. So, uh, you know, that's, don't, don't, you understand prophecy in the context of Scripture. And not just um, 
one element of it. Well, the watchmen are the first to see what's coming, whether it's good or bad. When Christ returns, the whole world will see him return in his glory. And uh, anyway, this is an ever-present encouragement. Verse 6 and verse 1 go together. Verse 7 now, which is also included with verse 1 and 6. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Well, who's give him no rest? It's God. Don't let up. Keep it before him. I love the language that he chooses. It's very, you know, we can get this. And God is like, yeah, I, I want you to I challenge me in prayer like this. Maybe, not, it's not a hostile arrangement, not at all. But it does require energy. The objective is resolve. If you're going to achieve your objectives, you're going to have as an objective, within the objective, the need to be determined. Because what is the alternative? What if he would have said, for Zion's sake... I'm not saying anything. He doesn't say that. He said, I will not hold my peace. In other words, I'm going to say a lot. He's going to do it through his people. So Isaiah tells the prophets that they must be vigilant. They must be diligent. They must work hard. And if the prophets fail, then everybody fails. But they're not going to fail because they're God sent. And just because they're martyred doesn't mean they failed. Uh, I don't remember the prophet's name, and maybe I shouldn't look for it in Jeremiah, but I think it's Uriah. Anyway, they, they, he preached just what Jeremiah was preaching, and they killed him. They, he ran to Egypt, they hunted him down, and they killed him. But they didn't get to kill Jeremiah. Some of the prophets die. Some of them are rescued. But they're good with it because they're servants of the Lord and uh, it's actually um, an upgrade uh, when you leave this world and you enter into your next citizenship in heaven. Anyway, um, if, um, if you have ever been encouraged to continue to pray, to continue to serve, well, here's precedence for it for in, your, in your own Bible. Uh, an encouragement to not let up. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give you grain as food for your enemies and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. I don't know why the Bible doesn't talk about milkshakes. All this fuss about wine. What about just a vanilla shake? And I don't mean the kind you get you have to go north about 100, 200 miles to find a good milkshake. I know that might offend some of you, but you're not a connoisseur. So, <laughs> yeah, this stuff they serve here at McDonald's and stuff like that, it's not milkshakes. Anyway, back to this. A Carvel milkshake. Oh, man. Well, we know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> anyway, verse 6. The ultimate, the ultimate, the outcome, never again will Israel be pillaged or plundered like Gideon, Gideon hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat. Well, I, I thought the wine press was for the wine and the higher elevation was for, we didn't want to get caught by the Midianites who would come day or night and take his grain. And so that's not going to happen anymore. Sworn, here it says, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Well, you would swear by a greater authority who could hold you accountable to some degree, either in conscience or in fact. Well, there's no greater authority than God. So he points back to himself. In other words, this is an emphatic divine commitment. There is no equal or higher. God says, uh, look, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it, all right? And I'm God. That's it's almost a Brooklyn flair to how I presented that. I didn't mean that part. But anyway, verse 9 but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise Yahweh. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Well, Isaiah 40 and through 48 tells us there's going to be a millennial temple. Um, we're not you know, as sure as Ezekiel was when he said it. We are sure it's going to happen. He's not the only one, but he's the main. He, he gave more detail than anybody else concerning the millennial temple. There's been the Temple of Solomon. That was the first one. Then Zerubbabel, that was the second one. 
And then Herod developed Zerubbabel's temple, expanded it, and he really put a lot into it. Um, and there may be a third one, and Antichrist will have his talons in that one, it looks like. But uh, that's not the one that is talked about here. This is Ezekiel's temple. Um, anyway, uh, the world will be making dr- pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to this temple, to express their worship. And, uh, you know, we at that time will be on a whole nother level than the survivors of the Great Tribulation that will be populating the earth um, at this time. But the Jewish people have not received their Messiah, as we all know, but at this time they will clearly understand God. Their theology will be right on. But right now, Paul says this about their theology. Their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why? Well, to understand Christ. Why? So I can go to heaven. Is that it? Absolutely not. There's being saved, and then there's going back to get others saved. They'll be part of that process in some form. And just you know, sharing the faith verbally is not the only way. Uh, so there, you know, there's other contributions we make to the processes of God. When, when the Lord says, tarry in Jerusalem and you shall receive power. For what? So you can name it and claim it? You can get a new car? Of course not. So you can be witnesses. So you can speak about your salvation with authority from the Holy Spirit. Right from the throne of God. You're going to be plugged in. There'll be no veil there. You'll clearly understand these things. And I think a lot of Christians never develop this. When they're given the chance to preach, they may shy away from it. But it's, the more you share your faith, the more the power begins to flow. Then you've got to watch, of course, pride, right? This is just, man, there's sin everywhere. I mean, you know, what if, you know, if you preach your little heart out, if I finish a sermon and I don't, I don't go, boy, that was, years ago there was a, a pastor, an older pastor in the Calvary movement, Ritter was his last name, and he tells this story that uh, he's preaching in Costa Mesa, and the chancellor is more elevated than this one. I, I think there's about six or seven steps on that one. Anyway, he's finished. He says, boy, I nailed that message. Got it. He got, as he's going down the stairs, yeah, he fell right on his face. I think about that every Sunday that I go down these stairs. There's not a Sunday that has been that I have, don't you fall. Not now. <laughs> Do it later when no one's here. Anyhow. Yeah, you, you, so, you know, that's how it is. You, you do a good job in Christ. You make sure you, you leave, it, leave it with him. And uh, backslapping yourself is just not a good idea. Anyway, uh, verse 10, go through, uh, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Well, uh, every spiritual obstacle is going to be gone. No more religious stumbling blocks. The debris from Armageddon has to be removed. Remember, when Christ comes back, he's not going to do all the cleanup. There's going to be a mess on earth from all those wars and hurricanes and tsunamis and all the other stuff taking place. Somebody's got to do something with it. Well, here we're going to have thoroughfares developed, travel routes to the place of global place of worship. I'm sure there'll be restaurants because the life's going to continue. Anyway, uh, no spiritual rubbish to hinder the progress. Today, you know, the Jews want to cut a Suez, not a Suez Canal, but a canal from the northern ear of the Dead Sea, uh, not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. You got the Red, the Dead, and the Med. Getting confused. Anyway, they want to cut through, uh, through their territory, through, through Gaza, into the Mediterranean. Well, that's going to put a damper on the relationship with Egypt. 
Egypt's going to say, hey, you're taking business from us. We've got this Suez thing over here. So to make, to pull something like that, you, man, the politics is going to be all in the way. It might happen, it might not, I don't know. But I know this, when Christ comes back, the politics won't interfere with anything that makes sense. If God says this is the right route, it's going to be the right route. There'll be no palms to grease and all that stuff. And it's just, you know, well, my constituents, uh, <laughs> there won't be any of that. And this is what is, is being said here. Um, the world system will be over. I love this verse. One of my favorites, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Yeah, because he's going to have it. And, and he's going to delegate it again to the righteous. But man, what a day that's going to be. I, I mean, when we, when we come back and ten thousands of his saints will be with him. I'll be the one taking pictures of the Lord. <laughs> okay, that looks a little silly. I've never done that. I despise that, actually, but, but it is funny to kind of think of. There's a Lord, you know, cleaning house, and there's some guy there with his phone up. I can't get a signal. All right, I'm sorry I did that. Let's, let's have more formal preaching. Only the less aggressive carnal nature will be around. Satan will be locked away. The world system will be gone. We have that triune enemy now, the evil trinity, Satan, the world, and the flesh that we have to deal with. Well, two of them will be gone, and one of them will be uh, very weakened at this time with no Satan. And then I think we'll find out just how much Satan messed with us, all of us, when he's locked away. Like, hey, this smells pretty good in here all of a sudden. So anyway, the banner flying here. Well, of course, the undivided allegiance to, to God. And you can read about, well, I'll take one. There's three of them in Isaiah alone. Isaiah 49, 22. You might remember this. I don't think so. I don't think any of us remember what, so much of what was in back in Isaiah. Some of it we do, of course. But let's see. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set them up and set up my standard for the peoples, they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. And someone stands up and says, yeah, I memorized that verse. <laughs> no, you didn't. Verse 11. I'm getting a little giddy because it's very early, and we're almost done. Verse 11. Indeed, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Well, the glorious future awaits the righteous, of course, and the righteous of those right with God on his terms. But the New Testament applies the reward part of this verse to Christ. Well, wait a minute. It's Yahweh that has the reward. Well, they must be the same person then. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. His reward, his work. Again, Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. And so it's a significant verse, and it's a little irritating in my prep time. I'm going through this. I even looked at my last time we went through Isaiah. Almost none of the, none of the commentators make this connection with Revelation 22.12. And I'm startled by that, by that. Well, surely this one's got it. Surely... The, after about 30 of them, none of them. However, if you look at the same commentators and their commentary on Revelation 22, many of them reference Isaiah 60 to 11. Now, there's no, the only thing in that is me just venting to you. <laughs> that they should have linked this because it is a golden verse. It is a verse that says this is the deity of Christ in the Old Testament. 
This is Yahweh bringing his reward with him, and it is assigned to Christ in the Gospels from the mouth of Christ, and then again in Revelation. I think it's a big deal. So, so one other thing. So I'm looking at the opening verse on my phone. I can take notes, and I'm looking at it, and I see a note there, and I'm thinking it's the commentator's note. So I'm looking, I said, man, this guy, he's writing, this is my beginning. It's, well, these are my words. It's amazing. I was kind of impressed on one hand and annoyed on the other hand. I was annoyed that I was saying the almost the exact same thing, the sac, exact scripture verses, and then I realized, oh wait, these are my notes. <laughs> so anyway, this is our form of confession. You get a pulpit and you talk about the silly thing. I felt so, I was, and then afterwards, I was like, well, I'm kind of impressed that I really like what I was reading because usually I don't like what I wrote. But then on the other hand, it was like, how could you be so dumb to not recognize your own kid? So, verse 12. <laughs> and, they, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So here we go again with the, the name changes. The Lord just, you know, just, just so many things about the whole thing's going to be different than what we know today. The redeemed of the Lord, Goel, as Boaz was to poor Ruth, and you shall be called sought out. Yeah, because the world is going to be gobbling up the history, how they got to the place they are, how it is that Christ came back. They're going to be, I mean, there are just people in this world that know nothing about these things. They've been victimized, either through politicians or 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 false religions, but then the survivors of the Great Tribulation period are going to be educated. And then they, in turn, will the education has to continue on to their offspring, and we will all be a part of that. A city not forsaken. And uh, I'll close with this from Zechariah, chapter 8. This is a beautiful section. And you go to Israel, you see a little bit of this happening today. There's a square there that I liked in Jerusalem, in the, in the Jewish quarter, it's like an open square, and the kids just playing, and it's just really beautiful. Anyway, uh, Zechariah 8, verse 4 and 5. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And, well, that's what's being called out here in verse 12 also. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a very exciting future you have, and we are a part of it. And uh, the, the hard, the hard uh, part of this whole thing is having this resolve, tough times, when we're afraid, when we're annoyed when we are picked on or perceived to be whatever is troubling us. We thank you that we can remember under those circumstances that sound doctrine matters. It will count. It will help. One, one other thing, Lord, could you get us all home safely tonight? We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.